Lord. Hey, stop playing me, man. <laughs> hey, yo, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, I'm glad this ain't one of them Mike Tyson joints where you pay for the joint. <laughs> hey, boo, stop playing, bro. <laughs> Sock this shit out to Lord May. Oh, man, that combination was pretty, too, at the end. Oh, man. I'm sitting here trying to understand how is y'all getting in these big fights <laughs> without your chin being insured. You got to get that coverage, man. Call me for all premium deals, platinum deals, whatever you need. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where a good friend of mine, Greg Hackett, is now officially selling chin insurance. So a lot of you guys out there getting put out in the first and the second round, wondering what happened, you know, wondering how many rounds it went, you know, talk to my pal Greg Hackett, man. He'll definitely make you right. But let's let's talk all things matchroom today. Because I think yesterday's show was was probably the first step towards the inevitable I don't want to say correction, but reversion to the mean is what I call it. You know, boxing depression, reversion to the mean. We're gonna get what we've always had. Because yesterday's show from the people I know who were there, the attendance was poor. Like normally you talk about did you fill both tiers up? Because obviously there's the upper and the lower tier. This is the time when we're talking about you didn't even fill up the lower tier. The upper tier was out of commission. You didn't even fill up the lower tier. I've heard people say there were about 3,000 people there tops. I've heard some people say they were closer to five. But in an arena that holds 18,000, that doesn't quite work. And you could see Sky was trying to be creative with the camera work. So you didn't see how bad it was. But on social media, you saw it was terrible. It looked terrible. That crowd wouldn't have filled out. I don't think it would have filled out the copper box. It might not have filled out the Wembley Arena. And it's a reminder. And people don't really understand how bad things have got with boxing because we kept things artificially high. And I still put it down to, in sequence, Kelbrook. No, no, let's roll it back actually. Frotch Groves, Brooke Porter, and then Joshua Charles Martin were the elements that kept the sport artificially high. Like, generally, boxing is about, like, mirth the leisure centre. British boxing, that's really what it's about. It's about small venues of about 1,500. You know, that's why when people make fun of Dennis Hobson, I say, no, what Dennis delivers is what British boxing traditionally is. Eddie's been lucky in that he had a ready-made star in Froch, a ready-made star in Kelbrook, a a one in a million pantomime villain in George Groves and an Olympic gold medalist who happened to be a super heavyweight. These things fell into his lap. They're not things he created, but he was able to to apply his savvy and exploit them. But but those sort of one-offs don't make British boxing. And what you saw on Saturday was essentially where British boxing is. And let's look at it. If that had been a card where Eddie Hearn had said, look, I'm going to hire out your call or I'm going to hire out whatever arena, I don't know, even the Royal Albert Hall, and I'm going to do a next-gen card. That would have been a damn good next-gen card. I wouldn't have been happy that Craig was on a next-gen card because I feel, I feel Craig is fringe world level, if nothing else. Probably world level based on his performance against Bivol, but he needs to demonstrate that against a credible opponent and he needs to get that kind of world level win. But you can't be overly reliant on 
you know, and this isn't meant to be disrespectful, but you can't rely on guys like Johnny Fisher to carry short-term interest in British boxing. You can't because it's a young man who can sell tickets, but he's learning his, his trade. And I guess just to, just to sort of follow on from Rakeem Noble, there's nothing more frustrating than hearing how many tickets someone sold before you see how good they are in the ring. And I think that's where we're at. But there are a number of reasons. Number one, post-COVID, a lot of people don't necessarily want to be in a confined arena with thousands of other people. So you're a bit like, I'm not so sure about that. Then on the flip side of that, there are people that didn't want to go through the protocols required to get into the O2. So you had to show that you were COVID-free or you were double-vaxxed and all of that sort of stuff. And we know that if you were going to pick a sport where there'd be anti-vaxxers, boxing might might be top two in that one. So there were all of these problems that Hearn had. But then the next question is, how did Joshua pull it off? So number one, there were a lot of complimentary tickets given out. You know, um, do I think 20% of the tickets they were given out? Probably. And then in terms of an attendance, was it anywhere near 60, 70,000? Of course it wasn't. So you did good numbers in an arena that was quite spaced out and was outdoors. People felt more confident and comfortable around that. And then there's the Joshua factor and the Usyk factor. So it's a legit big fight. But that's the exception and not the rule. And it, the real test for this will be what happens with Chisora and Parker, which is a fight no one really cares about. Well, you know, Chisora's no, he's not, he's not even training in London anymore to build up that interest. He's up there with, with, <laughs> with Caldwell, the, the perennial groomer of boxers, I should say. So he's up there doing that. But if that fight, if that tanks, or if one of them were to get injured, boxing would be in a very dark place because it would mean that Matchroom aren't really making their money. And we can talk about that later in terms of that managed retreat from the US and what you're going to see from Eddie Hearn you know, going forwards. But what I really want to touch on, if I'm being honest, is a card that was really interesting. And there's a theme that runs through the card. And I think it runs through this strand and generation of British boxers. And I almost go, what the hell are they doing in the gym? What the hell are these guys doing? I sit there mostly and I, I see the social media and if it's not a, a, an Instagram story of someone telling me, yeah, I'm just studying the game or no days off and all this sort of stuff that they try and do to say, yeah, I'm really working at my craft. I'm like, what the hell are you really doing? Because of all the people I watched on that card, and I've caught up with most of it now, the only guy who showed any kind of intelligence and savvy and filled you with confidence that they could execute at a high level was Craig Richards so I'll explain what I mean boxing's a really simple sport right it's about two things and if a coach tells you anything other than this sack them walk away walk out the gym don't waste your time with them because they don't know what they're talking about boxing is about pace and structures there's all the stuff like psychology, geometry, and geography. That's what we use when we're breaking down the fight, why, what happened. But if I'm feeding you something, it has to fit within a structure and you have to execute it at the right pace. Without those two, you're just, you're just going to have war after war and you're going to shorten your career. So what's an example of a structure? Okay, get, here, here's a very simple one. Now, when I sit down with guys and we talk about what you're supposed to do in the ring, it just breaks down to this, right? You're going to do one of three things, right? So you're going to engage and retreat, you're going to engage and protect, or you're going to engage and attack, right? 
But what unifies all of those is the fact that you have to engage. And what does that mean? You have to engage your opponents. So you, you have to give your opponents something that makes them react. And based on that reaction, you then determine what your most appropriate response to that should be. Yeah? But the engagement does another thing. It stops your opponent thinking in their structured way. So I don't know if anyone watches some of these dog training videos, uh, Cesar Milan, or the guy from South End who's actually really good, <laughs> failing that big John McBride. They all talk about the same principle when training dogs. Whatever a dog's fixated on, you've got to break them from it. Otherwise, you end up with, a, with an angry, reactive dog. So anytime you see a dog behave in a way you don't want it to, you break its attention and it almost forgets everything about it. So that's what engaging is all about. I'm trying to break your train of thought. I'm trying to break your structures and your sequences. Okay? So what does retreat mean? It just means, you know what? I'm going to give ground. Why am I giving ground? I might want to see what you're going to do in response. I might just want to get my breath back. But I've engaged you. I've made you act in a way I want you to react. Then I've just retreated a bit, got myself together, and we go again. Engage and protect. I want to have a look, but I want to be a little bit closer because I have, a, I have a working theory in my head of how you're going to react, so I need to exploit that. So that might be something like jabbing and just ducking. No steps back, nothing. Just jabbing, ducking, or jabbing, and then you know what I mean? put the earmuffs on. Whatever, whatever you want to do. Then there's jab and attack. Engage and attack, sorry. That can come off a jab. That can come off a feint. There are all sorts of things that can come off, but that's when you start to move in on your opponent and say, I'm going to take your space. I'm going to drive you backwards because I want to put you on the ropes. When you think of it in those three terms, engage and attack, engage and retreat, engage and protect, boxing is a really simple sport. So what differentiates the guys who really do it well from the guys that don't? What pace can you do it at? Yeah, that's the whole expression of can you move through the gears? So can I do it at 220 moves around? Can I do it at 320 moves around? Can I do it at 400 moves around? And then how long can I do that for? That's how you've got to manage your pace through a fight. There's certain parts in a round I might want to go up to 400. Then there's certain parts I might want to come down to 200. And then I need to use the different tools in different ways. But you see what I've just explained to you there? There isn't a trainer in this country that will talk in those terms. They would in Russia. They would in Cuba. They would in the United States. That's why they produce consistently. So what I saw in that match from show was a lot of young British talent, brave, strong, fast. You know, stamina was there. All the kind of the boilerplate factors, the things you need to be credible in the sport were already there. I didn't see a lot of structure. And I didn't see a lot of understanding of pace. Right? And that probably cost people stoppages and it probably cost people results. Because it's that once you've once you know they can't live with your pace, you take away everything they've done in their training camp. They're fighting on instinct. They're trying to figure out solutions to problems on the spot. And when someone does that in the middle of a boxing ring on fight night, they're in a dark place. So objective one is actually get the structure in place. Objective two is get that pace there. And you turn every opponent into a gibbering wreck. Guaranteed. Who's a good example of this? Manny Pacquiao. You tell me what Manny Pacquiao really has that made him special. 
Jab was okay. Backhand was okay. Hook was okay. This idea that he hit you from unusual angles, uh, not really. But what he had was pace. He, he set a pace that people couldn't cope with and they always tried to stop him and in stopping him, you gave him the openings he knew he was going to get and he was the master of exploiting those openings. And round after round, he'd set that pace and you'd get more and more tired and you'd realise you hadn't prepared for this in camp. So in the second half of the fight, you became a stationary bag for him and he could just tee off on you. But that wasn't down to technical genius. It was literally down to that structure and that pace. Manny Pacquiao's the master of that engage, retreat, engage, protect, engage, attack. He watches fights. That's all they are. All done at a pace that no one could live with. Lomachenko, pretty much identical structure. Usyk, identical structure. That's how he ground Joshua down. That's how he was able to pull away from Joshua because he could hold his pace at a time when Joshua couldn't. So when, when I was looking at those fights yesterday, I was, I was looking at that from that perspective. What are these guys really delivering? So the fights I had the most interest in, and this is just purely biased from you know stuff that I enjoy, people I know, the fights I was looking forward to were Ellie Scottney, Yusuf Kamari and Craig Richards. That doesn't mean I didn't watch the other ones, but they were the three ones where just because we exchange, we communicate a lot between each, you know, with the start again. I communicate a lot with those guys. So I kind of understand where their heads are at and what they're trying to do currently in their careers. So I take an interest to see how well are they executing that. And so I enjoyed the Yusuf Kamari fight, but I enjoy watching Yusuf. Just think two years ago, Yusuf was fighting Liam Dillon. And I think he fought him to the draw for, an, for the English title. And now he's, he's on that, that matchroom stage, that kind of grey area between pay-per-view and subscription. But he's, he's at that level where he can kick on. And he fights, what's it, Jorge Castaneda? Which is a strange fight on a Dillian White undercard, considering this is Dillian's stable coming out to play. This is Dillian's, you know, his business, essentially, his post-retirement business, we're managing these guys. So let's give them a showcase fight. I thought this was an unbelievably reckless piece of matchmaking. Like, this is the sort of matchmaking you do when you're saying, okay, Yusuf, we're going to take you to America. I'm going to put you in with the guy that beat Otha Jones III. The fans understand what that means. So if you beat him, that's a big deal. Castaneda meant nothing over here. And what Castaneda was, was a journeyman in the truest sense of the word. Not a Lithuanian binman, not a Latvian door sweeper, none of all of that stuff that people like to talk about. He was a guy who knew his way around a ring. He's a guy that's been in there rough. And you know he's a guy that's been around all the gyms and giving people good work. And you could see that he could do something for his career if he had the right backing. But he probably doesn't have the right backing. So what ends up happening? You put this guy on the road. And just from what I understand, Hearn had a deal with him. I don't know how many fights the deal was for, but Hearn had to fill the quota. So he did Otha Jones, obviously. Um... The use of fight was next, and they'll find another fight for him at 130 pounds, maybe 135. Now, Yusuf shouldn't be a pawn in this kind of game, in my opinion. I don't think that's very fair. I think he's got a career they should be building the right way, because you've got to remember, like I said, he was fighting Liam Dillon two years ago. 
You're talking about a division where guys like Tank and Shakur Stevenson can happily coexist. You know, Jamel Herring as an example. So I'm watching Yusuf and I'm, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm I'm watching as a fan. I'm watching as someone who really wants to see this guy thrive and excel. And there are good bits in there. Jab to the head, jab to the body. But it, he looks like a clever kid in the ring. But I'm like, where's the structure? What are the bits you're trying to exploit on this guy? Because what Castaneda was good at, he already had his structure. And you could see that he was definitely focusing on that, that left hook to the body and bringing it up afterwards. He, he knew what he wanted to do. And that seemed to be the difference between the two. Did he hit harder than Yusuf? God, no. Some of the punches Yusuf was landing, there was one in the fourth round and he threw a left hook to the body. And you saw Castaneda like react to that in a way where you're like, whew, we've all felt one of those before. And, and I'm watching Yusuf and I'm like, there's some fantastic shots here. There's some really good shot making. But there isn't anything knitting it all together. So I was like, how are you breaking him down? You're going to break him down with pace? You're going to break him down with a jab? You're going to break him down with body shots? Which one is it? It, it, it all seemed a bit reactive which you didn't need because, like I said, he's super talented. But it's a thing that we, we have, and it's not just him by any stretch of the imagination. Now that I've mentioned it, go and look at British boxers generally. You know, even Eubank Jr. It's all very reactive. There's no, there's no central strategy linking all of this together. There's, there's no thing like, like Mayweather. You knew what Mayweather was going to do. And that's what made him even more foreboding was you knew what he was going to do. And you couldn't do anything about it. Same with Manny. To an extent, same with Oscar and Bernard Hopkins. Because they had their structures nailed down and drilled into them. And all they had to do on fight night was execute against those. Now, I think Yusuf will get there. I'd, like, I'd have liked the matchroom matchmakers to have waited till he got there to put him in with a guy like Castaneda. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy the fight. I thought... Thought when it came when it came down to a slugfest, I thought Yusuf was really good. Actually, you know, I thought he showed toughness, he showed grit, he showed all the things that when you move up the levels become even more important. They magnify when you move up the levels. I think the missing piece is kind of that foundational bit, like I just mentioned, understanding what you need to do and why. But that's going to be the interesting part of watching his development. I don't think this is a bad loss to take. I think this is the right point in your career. You're under 15 fights. This is a good time, is it? Is he? He's under 16, isn't he? This is a good time to take that loss, pause, regroup, reflect, and then just simplify your approach and go, how do I normally hurt people? Okay, here are the shots I throw that normally hurt people. Let me just be creative in how I structure everything else. I can let those shots go at the right time in the right context. But thought he was entertaining. I think if you're looking at him from a TV perspective, he'll always give you an entertaining fight. So you should back him. And I, it felt, and I spoke to some guys behind the scenes, it kind of felt like Yusuf was, it was treated a bit like a second-class citizen. You got to remember, this is the Dillian White show. So, so Team Body Snatcher should be front and centre. They should be getting all the media attention. I didn't see many interviews with Yusuf. I didn't see enough coverage of Yusuf. You know, I haven't seen enough of that backstory. There hasn't seemed to be any investment in Yusuf. Remember, this was a Dillian White show. 
So for her to be sneaking people like Chantal Cameron in and Johnny Fisher, these are people who have nothing to do with Dillian, if you remember. So what does that say to Hearn's assertion that, oh, the fighter controls the budget, the fighter controls who's on their card? Clearly not. Because they got all the energy. Johnny Fisher got more attention than Yusuf Kamari, but Yusuf is there because he's part of Team Body Snatcher. And so, on a platform like this, where you should be focusing on him, you're not. Which always tells me that Hearn's got other agendas. And, you know, it looks like that kind of 2013 to 2014 thing of get loads of people from the East End and Essex on your shows, and that will drive your revenue. You know, it was boring then, it'll be boring now. Now, but a thousand percent, keep your eyes on Yusuf and let's see how he comes back from this because like, that's the guy I'll always back because I think he's a good person. Um, generally respected around the sport, nice guy, polite, respectful, can hit hard, can fight, can do all of those things, you know. And I, I still remember him and the, the IQ boxing crew, you know, at the boxing tournaments. Always full of noise and energy, man. Good bunch of guys. But, you know, it was that sort of bouncing around was like, I could never lose to these guys because this would irritate me. So I made sure I never lost to an IQ boxer. So that's what I was happy about. But overall, I was happy for him. Um, it was actually, on a side note, it was really good to see Guy Williamson, you know, front and center, wrapping the belt around people. Because as I've said before, I think Guy Williamson's one of those people you've got to respect in boxing. Uh, like, like a Clifton Mitchell. I think they're from that same kind of era. So you've got to respect those guys. They're like the elder statesmen now. And it's just good to see them getting an opportunity, finally. But I just want to switch gears now and talk about a guy who's at a, at a different end of the spectrum. And that's Craig Richards. Now, go back to Craig Richards' super middleweight days when he fought Alan Higgins. And Alan Higgins gave him a nightmare of a night. And I think at the time, the general consensus was Higgins had done enough to win. I'm not going to argue that point. I think there's a valid case for that. And at that time, you could see Craig was boxing in a really confused way. So now when I see Craig box now, and he boxed uh, the Polish guy, was it Martia or Martina? I can't even I can't remember these names now. But he boxed him last night. And, okay, it's not Dimitri Bivol in front of him, admittedly, but it's still a guy who was competitive in game. And what you saw with Craig was the structure. You know, I'm going to control this distance with this jab. This jab's going. I know the jab's going to hurt him because it's hurt everyone else that's come before. And once I work out where the openings are, I'm going to start booming that right hand over. And so Craig did that in a really structured way until he had him hurt. And as soon as he had him hurt, what did Craig do? He moved through the gears, and you started to see the the, the shot variety. So the right uppercut he was throwing was nasty. That left hook he threw was nasty as well. And what I really liked about Craig's shots. You didn't see a lot of tension when he threw them. It was like he was just throwing, you know, it was like rounders. He was just pitching in rounders or he was throwing a tennis ball. That relaxation is probably what gave him the extra whip in the shots. And it was, it was merciless. When the finish came, it was merciless because having done some work with Craig in the past, I know how heavy those hands are. They don't look it. And it's not, it's not dynamite. Like it's not a, a firecracker type of punch. But what it is, it's a punch that just takes minutes off your career. And you take too many of them, it starts to take days and weeks and months off your career. And that's what Craig's mastered. He's mastered what he's capable of, what he can do under pressure, and he just refines and perfects that. And people say, well, yeah, but he lost to Bivol. 
I don't think Bivol will ask for the rematch. Although I think Craig's going to push for that rematch. And I think you'll see a different outcome this time because now he's got that confidence behind his own structure and his own pace that he can do what he needs to do to win against Bivol, I think. And more power to him. But I enjoy that. I don't think Craig should have been on that bill. And I think you've got to start talking about Craig fighting some of the guys that are going to give him that commercial appeal. I wouldn't be against him fighting someone like a like a Lyndon Arthur, Anthony Yard, or Joshua Barty. It's, it's time we saw these fights, surely. If not now, when? You know, that strategy Hearn has of kind of trying to sneak people into contention for the WBA title, especially at a time when the WBA belts are so poorly regarded. It's a meaningless adventure for someone. Put him in with a Joe Smith, for God's sake. These are fights that surely can happen. I don't, I don't really understand it. Callum Johnson's available. Put Craig in with guys who will help cement his legacy. There's something about Craig that Hearn doesn't like and is, you know, keeps throwing him in harm's way. And the only thing is Craig is a survivor. I remember Darren Barker talking about Craig being laid back and I took offense at that because anyone who's been around Craig knows he's always sizing you up. If, if you tell Craig you're a light heavyweight, immediately he's like, okay, what would happen if we spar? What would happen if we fight? He's always looking. He's always calculating. He's a smart guy. That doesn't mean he doesn't enjoy life, but for him, boxing is all business. That's his job. He takes it really seriously. Won't be late for training. Won't miss sessions. You know, that's how success is made. So when Darren Barker says that, he's just, like most commentators, he's just talking from the cliche handbook, isn't he? And this is why I don't listen to those sorts of guys, because they're out of touch now. Right? They don't know who's doing what, or because they're so busy trying to, trying to cement their own grift that they're not really worried about who's coming through. But overall, I was happy with Craig. Um, some of the other fights that we saw, Alan Babbage against Molina. They must just be getting Molina over here for, like, it's, it's hush money, isn't it? So he doesn't talk too much about why he got banned from, you know, why he got banned for taking banned substances. But I said it after the Fabio Wardley fight. He threw himself to the floor. Against Alan Babbage, he threw himself to the floor. Almost like he said, well, my work here is done. I quite frankly don't care whether the fans were entertained or not. And here's the sad thing. They will dig Molina up for someone else. At some point, Johnny Fish is going to get Molina. Yeah, that thing to kind of take him over and say, well, why can't he fight for a Commonwealth or a British title? He just beat Eric Molina. That's a better name than anyone else has got on their record. And that's the sad thing about boxing. We, we keep talking about these names. You know, would you dig up Thomas Adamek at this point? Kevin Kingpin Johnson? There has to come a point where we just tell people, look, you're not good enough to box. And that's not the fans' job, although the fans just should just refuse to watch. But it is the board's job to say, we don't want Molina here. Not only is he a drug cheat, for goodness sake, he was disrespectful about British boxing when he was banned. Why are we allowing him back here? I don't understand it. But I'm happy that Alan Babbage sort of just ended that sorry saga. I'm a Babbage fan. A lot of people aren't. And they keep saying stuff like, well, what's going to happen when he meets a person like this? Or what's going to happen when he meets a person like that? Okay, now let's turn it around. What's Huey Fury going to do when he meets an Alan Babbage? You know, 
What's uh, Philip Hergovich going to do when he meets an Alan Babbage? What's Tony Yoka going to do when he meets an Alan Babbage? Why isn't he their problem? Why isn't he their nightmare? Because think about fighting Alan Babbage. You're there going, I have to survive the first six rounds before I can even get anything off because he's not going to let me. Can I survive those initial rounds? Some people will, a lot of people won't. So this is a time to start accepting Alan Babbage might, he might boot the laws of boxing into the air because as he said in his press conference, he wants to get knocked out. He wants someone to knock him out. And when someone's got that mindset, they become scary because they're essentially fearless in the ring. Fearless to the point of being reckless? Maybe. But definitely fearless. So I'm looking forward to see what they do with Babbage. Do you move him on quickly? Knowing that his style will be his style now. Now, there's not much you got. he has to learn about it other than I need to take these guys out in under six rounds. But I think he's an exciting prospect. I, I look forward to that. You know, do you put him in that bridger weight category? I think he just fights where he wants. Cruiser, bridger, heavy, doesn't matter to him. He just wants to keep fighting. Who else was I looking at with Glee? Jordan Thompson. Really happy for Jordan Thompson. Finally, the wider boxing community gets to see the the big friendly giant. I think he's think he's class. Would I throw him in with Lawrence right now? No. Let him let him get his own momentum. Let him build his own profile. But at six seven, as a cruiserweight, oh, it's a lot of hard work. So, big fan of his. I know him and George Fox are pretty close, so they work together a lot. But. When you see guys as big, you're like, what does the future hold? We're not far off boxers in those weight categories being close to seven foot. Like, I think Fury is the exception now. And in half a generation's time, he'll be the rule. Kids are just getting big now. Insanely big. You know, on some of your big kids, Johnny Fisher as well. I'm still not sold. I'd like to see a bit more composure from him. You know, they're going to keep giving him soup cans until like we said earlier, till they can get him a title shot and justify it. But I'd like to see more. Like when you're when you come from that Tib stable, there's supposed to be that veneer of quality, that 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 polish. And hopefully that comes with experience. Because you've got to remember this is the guy who, if I'm correct, was wasn't he playing rugby at Exeter University before? So he's got to make that adaptation, much like Nick Campbell does. But you can see that fight happening in the not too distant future. Now, I'm going to own up to my sins and say I've seen bits of the Ellie Scottney fight based on what I was able to get off, you know, sent through via WhatsApp and so forth. So I haven't seen all of it. But what was it, 59, 53 or something? So another Ellie win. Surprised that she dropped around, you know, because I don't think she, she, she should ever lose a round. I don't think she'll ever lose a round. But interesting that she weighed in at 123 pounds. So she's definitely going hunting for Shannon Courtney and Ebony Bridges. Now, I don't think they really want it with her. Just because she's as pure a combination punch as you're going to get. Shane was right. I think when she believes in herself a bit more, she'll start taking these guys out because she can, she can be a savage when she really cuts loose. And that's what she needs to remember. Man. It's, this is a job now. You know, you, you're not doing it for the social media likes. You're doing it for the destruction. And so I'd like to see her jumping with Shannon Courtney, jumping with Ebony Bridges, jumping with Rachel Ball. And then when she's done there, maybe she'll move up to Feather and Super Feather and clean up there. But now, excited with her progress, I think people should rightly get behind Ellie Scottney because 
she's what we wanted women boxing to show us. You know, that grit, that skill, that desire to really dig them in and hurt people. So no, no, kudos to Ellie and onwards and upwards for her. So in terms of the the rescheduled main event, which was Chantal Cameron versus Mary McGee, all I can say is I feel for Chantal Cameron because I think Chantal Cameron's at the level where she's earned the fight with Katie Taylor, right? She's earned a fight with Cecilia Breakers. And for some reason, these fights aren't happening. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why. Is it people not wanting to fight Chantal Cameron? Hopefully it's not because I'm a, I'm a big fan of hers. I, like, I said it years ago. I don't think she could do any other sport. She's one of those people when you see how she boxes, if she wasn't boxing, she'd be doing MMA. And if she wasn't doing MMA, she'd be scrapping outside the shops. Doesn't matter where, but she'd be scrapping outside the shops and she might be selling weed on the side. I don't know. But that's that sort of thing. She She's one of those where you look at her and toughness ripped through her. Now, bear in mind that Chantal Cameron's been on the radar as an amateur and a pro since like 2009, 2010. When's she going to get her break? Mary McGee was terrible. I know there are people who banged the drum for women's boxing. Fair enough, cool. What I saw of Mary McGee last night was dog shit. Was embarrassing. You didn't need to go abroad to find someone for Chantal Cameron if that's the standard. She was terrible. And I know people are talking about the, the Cali Race girl coming through. She's terrible as well. Chantal Cameron's head and shoulders above all the people they're trying to put her in with. Just put her in with Jessica McCaskill. If she wins, they put her in with Katie Taylor. And then, you know, just kind of round-robbing those, those sorts of people at 140. Just round-robbing it and let's be done with it. But what I saw last night wasn't great. I thought Chantal Cameron had her way. She had fun in there. She enjoyed herself. Which isn't what main events should be. If we're being brutally honest. And that kind of put a, put a dampener on the whole thing. But it kind of reinforced the fact that the chest or the, the barrel's pretty dry at the moment. It's dead. Not a lot of talent to get excited about. Although I was excited by Thomas Carty. Although he came in way heavier than I expected him to. So for context, Thomas, Thomas Carty, is a, is a, he's a guy who's kind of been, um, so it's a, sort of like a, like a big man. He sort of comes in after the guys like Con Sheehan, for example. But he's better. And he's put his graft in. We've seen him at various tournaments over the years. Big Southpaw, gets loads of sparring because there aren't many like him. So he's done the camps with Joshua and Dillian. And he's proven himself. So I'm intrigued to see what Thomas Carty can do now. Because you know, if he if he comes in a bit trimmer, lighter on his feet, I think he could be a force. I like him. Likeable guy. Um, just going back in the archives, some of the videos he did when he was in camp with Shane McGuigan. So I think it was him, Freezy, and a load of other guys. And it was absolute mayhem in there. But it was hilarious. He's, he's a good addition to the pro rank. So I'll be intrigued to see how they manage him going forward and what he does. So I think to summarize that card, best of a bad bunch. I don't think Hearn's got many more aces he can play. And especially if Joshua never regains those belts, it's all going to be a struggle. That's more reflective of how bad British boxing is. And I think what we're doing is we're returning back to what British boxing really is, which is smaller venues, lower quality fights, um, and more, 
more entertainment for the Beer and Birds Brigade. So I don't know if you heard during the Johnny Fisher one, it was just the football crowd really, wasn't it? And it helped that West Ham were playing, I think West Ham played today? I think they played today. So, you know, all the boys were out on a Saturday night. They just, I don't feel overly excited about where where that's going at the moment. You know, the quality of matchrooms depleting, the quality of Queensbury's depleting. And at no point is anyone going, guys, we'll all make more money if we just fight each other. And I think that has to be fighter-led and not promoter-led. A lot of fighters are, are burying their heads in the sand when they shouldn't be. We should be demanding these fights happen. The fighters should be demanding these fights happen. Leave the promoters with no choice. Because unless we do that, we're just scheduled for week after week of dross. And all we'll do is be negative. Then people say, why are you guys always negative? But we're warning you now, we're heading to a dark place. Contrast that with what we saw in the States. Jerome Ennis. But the most interesting thing I heard about Jerome Ennis post, you know, post beating Thomas Delorme was Lou DeBella saying Jerome Ennis beats Terence Crawford now. Now, I'm not quite on that train yet, but I'm definitely looking to see if it's headed to the destination I'd like to go to. I think he's competitive with Crawford. I think we still need to see him in a benchmark fight, maybe against Benavides Jr., like Crawford did. Let's see what he does with Benavides, for example. Or when the Sean Porter fight's done, let's see what he does with Sean Porter. The biggest thing holding Jerome Ennis back is the fact that he's not an Al Heyman fighter. As the court cases and everything are telling us, he's signed to whoever that guy was that sued. And what Al will say is, I need a piece of Jerome, or I can't put him in with the guys that are going to make the money. It doesn't make sense for me. So I think they need to resolve that so that Al gets a piece of whatever action is happening. And then you'll see Jerome Ennis start fight for titles. Because he's ready. He's been ready for a long time. He's light years ahead of any gatekeeper. He's light years ahead of any guy that's challenged for a world title. And the only people you're really talking about as being his equals right now for me are Spence and Crawford. Maybe Virgil Ortiz. But I think, I think he's, he's too seasoned for a Virgil Ortiz Jr. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. I just feel that way. Go back to what he did to Delorme. He was always looking for that, that right hand chopping down because he knew Delorme was going to try and bob and weave. That's what I mean about structure. You know, He waited for the right position to do that and he could switch between Orthodox and Southport in a way that we rarely ever see because it's pretty seamless. And so you look at him, you go, that's a guy that can do it all. Like Crawford, can do it all. Has the power, has the spite, has everything you want to see in a fighter. So if you can just grab that stoppage and watch that, please do. Because you'll understand what we mean that when we say there are levels to this. He's been a pro roughly the same amount of time as Conor Ben. Maybe a similar comparable number of fights, yeah. Compare their records. That's the difference in developing fighters. That's the difference. And you see, those incremental differences in the opponents they face, they add up when you get to world level. They're the difference between winning a world title and winning a world title and defending it, hanging on to it for as long as you want to. Because 
and I've talked about Jerome Ennis for years. Greg Hackers told you all about the kid. The kid's special. He just needs to get his business affairs in order so that you know everyone can eat the right amount and then he'll get all the chances he wants. So now I'm highly impressed with him. Um, on the top rank show, who do they have? They had that Sepeta stoppage. Um, I know there's a lot of noise about that fight, but to be honest with you, I'm neither here nor there on that. I don't think that's sort of top rank's real lane at the moment. You know, they've got Josh Taylor in that kind of space, and that's all they really need at the moment. I know they're struggling with Teofimo, and he he just seems to be so badly managed at the moment that he just needs to get this Cambosos fight out the way, and hopefully it starts to open up that lane for him to fight a Haney or a Tank or someone, because... He shone so bright a year ago when he beat Lomachenko and he just hasn't backed it up. And I think he needs to back it up and I think he can. So that's where I really, that's where I sit on that one. Top rank have a lot of sorting out to do in their kind of sub-154 roster. And let's start working out who the stars are meant to be and let's get behind those guys. I'm trying to think what else has been happening. Um, the rumours are that DeZone are close to buying BT Sport and that should all take effect next summer. So I think post the end of this season I've talked about it so much there's probably not much more for me to add other than to say I'll be intrigued to see the integration journey because you've got two different price points right so when you bring the product together does the price go down I don't think it does I think the price will go up so are you now going to start charging 25 a month and then pay-per-view on top of that I don't know or do you just slot into the BT Sport pricing model because essentially you're just acquiring 300,000 additional customers, right? At 20, 20 quid a month, that's, that's cash flow. The great thing about that is this is money that comes in every month. And so they'll try and grow that out, combine that with their zone subscription. So expect to pay somewhere close to 20 pounds a month to have all of that at your, at your disposal. But what does it do for boxing? Not much. BT's roster is not that strong. It's strong on the... On the prospect side, I guess that's why they could sign Kevin Agiaco, right? Because he's gone from Frank to Eddie. And I guess the thing is, look, we're going to buy BT Sports, so you're going to be back on there anyway. You're just going to have a better promoter. And I think if this goes through, Frank's going to have to start asking questions. I wonder if BT will get a legal letter from Frank going, you can't sell this to the zone or I'll sue. But I think it'll just be, that's going to be the interesting thing. Where does Frank go? Does Frank go back to Box Nation? I don't know. Zone have showed that this whole paying for boxing thing doesn't work. So what do you do? Does Frank come back to Sky? Frank go to ITV? Can you imagine Frank on ITV? I don't even think there's the budget anymore. You know, TV is dying. Or does Frank go to Amazon? There's got to be something. Frank's got to have a play here because if Zone are going to end the Golden Boy contract. And I can see Golden Boy maybe trying to resurrect something with HBO. So if Golden Boy are going to leave the zone, I don't see there being any room for Frank. I think it'll be exclusively with Eddie. But who do you sign? Because everyone's pretty much signed to Frank, right? Apart from Fury, who's signed to BT. So I guess Hearn eventually does get his hands on Fury. But isn't that the... I think Fury's next fight's the end of the deal, so then Fury will probably move back to Sky, anything to get away from Eddie. But I think that's just going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. Other news that's been happening, World Championships, didn't think the GB squad was that strong. I think the first week of results have proved us correct. 
Um, from a personal perspective, happy to see young Christopher Luteki doing his thing for Congo. You know, British British raised boxer in terms of the the system he came up under, and also um, young Mo, who trains with us at Fitzroy Lodge. He entered under the flag of Somalia. Disappointed that Chris Lloyd hadn't done his research and realized that he came up in the British system too. Acted like this guy was anonymous. And I felt for I felt for Mo, and I'll tell you why. Ten years ago we sent Javan Young to the World Championships and he lost to a Ukrainian called Alexander Gavodchik. Ten years later we send Mo and he loses to another Ukrainian. And we just have this bad luck with Ukrainians. And the thing about these guys that I really respect is they come into amateur tournaments and they just throw one-twos. They've perfected the one-two to such an extent they don't need any other punches. And I think we can learn from that as a country. There's, there's something to be said for mastering a very small set of tools before you layer anything else on top. And on that note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now because I realize I've just hit 45 minutes, which I hadn't planned to do. But I'm going to say, guys... Have a great Monday and look out for the AJ episode, which will be following pretty soon after. Take care. Bye.